When they made a supper for Jesus in that home in Bethany, I'm sure they had no difficulty attracting a crowd. They must have admired the courage of the man, who by now had a price on his head, so to speak, and that they'd already tried to stone him the last time he was in that vicinity. And now the Pharisees have left strict orders that the first one seeing Jesus of Nazareth should come and report to them that they might come and put him to death. Still, Jesus came back to Jerusalem because Bethany is just outside the city. And when they learned that he was coming some six days before the Passover, they made him a supper. And as always, Martha is serving, true to her character. But this time, the contrast is not between Mary and Martha, but the contrast is between Mary and Judas, one of the disciples of Jesus. It was while Jesus was reclining at that table, for you recall in those days they reclined, it was during that supper that Mary took the costly perfume, the box of nard, and used it to anoint the feet of her Savior. It was customary in biblical times that the head should be anointed, usually using a drop of oil for that purpose, but this is extravagance personified to use the entire box of what would have taken a year to buy, 300 denarii, a year's wages. Nard came from a plant grown in northern India, so only a family of some means and influence would be able to accumulate as much as a pound of the pricely ointment. Still, she poured it all over the feet of Jesus. So self-forgetful was she that, like the sinful woman who came in off the street at the home of Simon the leper and washed the feet of Jesus with her tears and dried them with her hair, this woman, the friend of Jesus, forgot herself because of her great love and unbound her hair in public, an unthinkable thing in those days, and used her hair to wipe the feet of Jesus. It's one of the loveliest stories in all the Bible. Indeed, we, we read in the Word that this story will be told as long as the gospel is preached. We tell it still. But in the middle of that lovely and gracious and extravagant expression of love, one of the disciples of Jesus took exception to what was happening and made his objections public. Now the other Gospels say one of the disciples of Jesus objected, saying, Why wasn't this ointment sold and, and sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? But now John, you recall, wrote his Gospel some 60 years after, afterwards, and a great deal of time has elapsed, so the evangelist didn't simply say one of the disciples. He says it was Judas. Judas objected. A rather vivid reminder that every motive is going to be revealed. And that which is whispered is going to be shouted. That which is now a secret is going to be made public. Now John points specifically to Judas and said it was Judas who objected, saying the money should have been given 
to the poor. But then he specified Judas, one of the disciples of Jesus. Put some emphasis on the one, one of the disciples of Jesus. The others did not protest. The others had uh, some sensitivity to the importance of the intangible. The others had some sense of the importance of worship, the kind they were witnessing in the person of Mary. They understood something of the nature of what was happening. One disciple. We have a tendency to generalize in these days. Someone who lives in our community was generalizing the other day when one of our well-known television evangelists was back in the news. Not on the front page this time, but on page 13 in one paper. And the news was not good. It was ugly. And this person was generalizing, saying, There, that's, that's why I don't go to your church. That's why I don't give any money to the church, because of that kind of thing. He said, I don't believe in organized religion. And I wanted to stop the conversation right then and say the only alternative to organized religion is unorganized religion. Which would you prefer? But I, I quickly, in our soft-headedness, we generalize about an in, all of the disciples because of one disciple. Many of us have been interested in this current World Series. It's one of the best I've ever witnessed in terms of close games. I remember hearing about the World Series of 1919. I think it was Boyd who was telling me about it. <laughs> according, to, according to that series of 1919, there was, there was a great scandal and, and, and you remember the, the scandal involved the White Sox. And, and according to the story, Shoeless Joe Jackson was involved. And there's a legend that a little boy walked up to Shoeless Joe and said, Joe, tell me it ain't so. And according to the legend, Joe looked down and said, I'm afraid it is, kid. I'm afraid it is. Lots of scandals in baseball. Tell us it ain't so, Pete Rose. Afraid it is, kid. Scandals in football. Tell us it ain't so, Mercury Morris. Afraid it is, kid. Scandals in basketball. Tell us those Rockets who got put off the team few years ago, tell us it ain't so, fellas. Afraid it is, kid. Does that mean the World Series is off? <laughs> Does that mean people will never go to another baseball game because there's a rotten apple in that barrel? What about football? You suppose anybody will show for the game out at the dome? Some of them have already gone, if you look up in the balcony. <laughs> What, what, what about the bad? Do you think it's hurt the ticket sales at the Rockets games? Well, that's absurd. We don't generalize about other professions. I, I even heard there was a bad physician once. I even heard there was a bad lawyer back there in Watergate. You know, I, I guess I, I've heard about rotten bear, uh, apples in every profession 
There is, but why do we pick on Christianity? Why do we want to judge other professions uh, uh, by their best and, and we want to judge Christianity by its worst? That's a soft-headedness, not worthy of a thoughtful person. People who do that, if I may generalize, many of them do that in the idea, with the idea of, of, of rationalizing rebellion. I'm persuaded of that. It's another way to cover up our unwillingness to make a commitment. And if we can take a Johnny-come-lately an evangelist and compare that evangelist with a church that's 153 years old and poured its life into a community for all those years, if you can make that kind of neat comparison, my friend, just hop on it. I can't do that. That, that, just, that just doesn't measure up to me. Now, the problem with... Judas, according to the scripture, is his basic problem it was he just wasn't honest. Again, John spells it out saying he is complaining because that money wasn't given to the poor, but John said he didn't care about the poor. And the man wanted that money because he was a thief. Jesus had made him the treasurer of the organization, and, and he bore the bag. Now, uh, the Greek word for bear means to carry or to carry out. In the case of Judas, he did both. He carried it and he carried it out. He was always dipping into that bag. And it just killed him when he saw that money in his mind being wasted when he could have gotten it into the bag and pilfered it. We need to be honest. Judas needed to be honest. We need to be honest about why we're oftentimes so touchy about money. Somebody said the, the story of that woman's generosity has been preached throughout the church for 2,000 years, but the grunt of Judas has been preached too. Maybe not from the pulpit, but it's been preached. It's like that. those two men who were talking about their wives' extravagance. One of them said to the other, I don't know what I'm going to do. Said day before yesterday, she wanted 200. The day yesterday, she wanted uh, 80. And today, she wants 150. And the fellow said, what's she doing with all that money? He said, I don't know. I haven't given her any. <laughs> uh, we get touchy about the money we haven't given yet. We really do, and we, we need to ask ourselves, well, why is that a problem for us? I, I know one, one man who said his church is so sensitive about money when it comes this time of year when we're underwriting the budget. He said he, his church is so sensitive that he could stand up in the pulpit and say, Mesopotamia, and they'd say, look at him, he's at it again. <laughs> look at Reality. The reality is, according to the New York Times, that we live in, a in an era when every day we are bombarded by news and views concerning what we ought to do with our money. During an average week, we will receive 5,000 appeals, 5,000 different appeals for our money. And then two or three times a year, someone stands up and reminds us that it's not ours, 
And the one who gives us everything asks us to give a tenth back to him. And we say, that's too much. Come on now. Let's get honest about money. Why are we touchy? Judas looked at that woman throwing away 300 denarii and he said, she's an idiot. Did you know the Greek word, the derivative of the word we use for idiot? It comes out of 5th century Greek. Do you know the derivative of that word for, for idiot means one who spends all his living on himself and not on the common good? Gives nothing to the common good? Now, the Bible calls him an idiot and calls her blessed. But greed has always resented generosity. Greed cannot understand generosity because greed is a spectator, has never really gotten inside. And greed looks at that and resents it just like mediocrity resents excellence because it's indictful. It makes us feel bad about who we are and what's happening in our lives. And one of the insidious things about the attitude is not only the position that we maintain as someone who, who has never learned generosity, but it also makes us resentful of those who are generous. It wasn't Judas money. He didn't work for it. But he couldn't stand to see her give it. We had a little problem in our family. Not really, but... Our twin granddaughters were born last uh, July, a year ago this past July. And not long after their first birthday, the largest of the little girls, Meg, just stood up one day and started walking, just like children do when they get to that age. But the, the smaller twin, Jean, has not begun to walk. And so we, we kind of kept up with that. And one day I called Kathy and I said, Kathy, what's... Jean doing now, I said, just crawling all around, said, she's perfectly content to crawl, and, and, and Meg walks. And I said, well, what does Jean do when she sees Meg stand up and run across the room? She said, well, Daddy, she claps for her. <laughs> and I thought, you know, she's going to be all right. I think she's going to be wonderful. That's... That's the kind of spirit here we're talking about. If, what is there within us which when someone else does a great and generous thing for the church of God, what is there within us that doesn't let us clap for them? What is there within us that resents someone beside us who makes less money than we do making a whopping pledge to the church? Why do we resent that? I think we need to get in touch with where some of this touchiness comes from. Where did Mary's generosity have its origin? Look quickly at her life. Three times we see Mary, and all three times she's at the feet of Jesus. First time she's at his feet listening to his words. Martha's running back to serving, and she complains, saying, Lord, make her get up and come help me. And Jesus said, Martha, you're, you're so busy with all these other things. Mary's chosen the best part. And so she's, she's devoted to the word of Jesus. One of the reasons why I believe this church has almost tripled its giving in recent years is because more and more of our people are devoted to the word of God. 
Our people are learning that tithing is not a far-out concept introduced by a Johnny-come-lately preacher, but tithing is as old as the Bible. And as they get into the Word of God, they have become tithers. It's, it's quietly revolutionizing the giving in the life of this church. Now, the second time we see Mary, she's, she's not just devoted to the Word of Christ, but you see her falling at His feet, saying, Lord, I, I was praying you'd get here in time. If you'd come in time, my brother wouldn't have died. She's complaining about the prayer she didn't get answered. And then later, you remember, Jesus raised her brother from the dead, and, and Mary had the experience of thanking the Lord for the prayers he didn't answer her way. He said no to her first prayer, but he answered her finest prayer. And a lot of people learn to give that way. They say, oh, the Lord's been good to me. He hasn't always given me everything I want, but oh, he's been good to me. And so that's the second time. She's, and then the third time, she's worshiping Jesus. She's pouring out this costly perfume. Her, her heart is just run over with gratitude. You take those three things, devotion to his word and prayer and worship, and many times that'll make a generous person. But still, that doesn't explain it. Because I've been a pastor for 30 years. I've seen people who would read God's word every day, and they tell me they say their prayers every day. They were in church every Sunday, and I've seen some of those same people die as a miser. And it scared me to death. The thought of one of my sheep standing before a, a, a Lord with nail prints in his hands trying to explain why they never learned how to give just scares me to death. You see, I'm an old-fashioned preacher. I still believe we have to answer to God. And, and, and the thought of that just scares me to death. So there has to be something else, not just those mechanics. There has to be something else. I think about that something else. I think about the scientists who've invented seed. They know the components of a seed. It has so much, so many parts, hydrogen and nitrogen and carbon. They've actually invented seeds. Only problem is when they plant those seeds, the ground absorbs them. Nothing happens. But did you read not long ago that when they opened one of those tombs of the pharaohs, they found a seed in it, all wrinkled and crumpled up. Nobody knows how old that seed was. Thousands of years old. Somebody out of curiosity took it out there and planted. You know what it did? Poop! It came up like that. That's the way God's seeds do. Now what's the difference? The difference is there is a principle of life. And what's the difference between people who go through the mechanics of worship and prayer and Bible reading and nothing happens and then someone like Mary comes along and suddenly they grieve because they can't do more? What's the difference? There is a meaning. There is the principle of life. There is a meeting with Jesus Christ. And out of that meeting, the seeing of the Lord, there is a surrender, a glad surrender of the self. A couple of years ago I told you about that chieftain who bothered Cyrus so much. He kept on fighting against him. Cyrus finally captured the man and his wife 
and he hauled them in before him on the day they were to be executed. Cyrus, out of curiosity, said to that stalwart young man, what would you do if I let you go free? He said, I'd be your loyal subject forever. And then he looked at the man's wife who was to be executed as well, and he said, what would you do if I let your wife live? He said, I'd die for you this instant. Cyrus was so moved, he sent him back to be the governor of the province where he had lived, to govern in Cyrus's name. On the way back, the man kept talking about, did you see that palace? Did you see the gold on those columns? What about the tapestries? Did you see the ivory in his chair? And the woman quietly responded, I saw only the man who was willing to die for me. And my friends, when you see the man who was willing to die for you, that's the component that makes us extravagant in our love. Amen. Our hymn of invitation is, O love divine, what hast thou done? As we sing this hymn, let those who feel that the Spirit of Christ is calling you to make a commitment, either for the first time by transfer of your membership, or perhaps you'd like to rededicate your life, If there is something in you that has responded to the word of God, I invite you to come as we stand and sing all three stanzas. (laughs) 